you so much, everyone, for joining us here for these festivities. And let me start. Welcome to the launch of the Future of Spirituality series on Noetic Nomads. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us here today. I'm Albert Kim, founder of Noetic Nomads, a community of radical thinkers and doers co-creating a more beautiful future. And befitting such a community, it is an honor and a pleasure to have here today one of the preeminent thinkers and doers helping to make that more beautiful world a reality. Our guest is a philosopher, writer, researcher, scientist, engineer, and third-generation master woodworker whose work spans everything from software systems design to the founding of Magic Flight, among the first companies in the world to introduce the portable vaporizer to spirituality, religion, ethics, and metaphysics in works such as The Effective Choice and an Imminent Metaphysics, which are favorites within our circles. We are now proud and excited to help introduce to the world his latest work, one dedicated to the earth and to all life and nature, such that all shall realize greater love in this world. Please help me in introducing a new and most wonderful offering, Western Core Tantra, as received and as given by our honored guest for today, Forrest Landry. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Forrest. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a blessing to be here. Mm. Awesome. And uh, the nomads are definitely big admirers of your work. In fact, uh, uh, one of our first articles um, on Nordic Nomads was called um, Game C and Love as Choice, which was, of course, inspired <laughs> by your work. So, yes, definitely. And um, the origin was, was of the session is we were asking about possible guests for uh, a possible Future of Religion panel uh, hosted by Raven Connolly, uh, which we had uh, about a week or so ago. Uh, and Azam Bishop, which is uh, who is a regular among these parts, mentioned Forrest. And uh, I reached out to Forrest and we agreed that there would be an even a, a better fit for a session than one unlike I mean, a panel for religion. And we came across a just, relief, a just released draft print on Western Core Tantra on the MFLB uh, website, and, uh, which is very synchronistic as I just held a salon on Tantra the previous week. Now, one of our attendees for that salon, Evan, is a Tantrika, spiritual seeker, and a nomad with whom you were a part of a Stoa Di Logo session. Uh, so I thought it was very appropriate uh, to convene this session today. So um, I just wanted to uh, let everyone in the audience know um, this session will last roughly 75, 90 minutes, where Forrest will speak on Western Core Tantra, facilitated by Evan. We'll move on to audience Q&A when it feels right, and I'll call on you to unmute yourself when you can put forth a question or statement. Now, after our session with Forrest, Everyone is invited to stick around for our social event, Nexus, where we as a collective start to explore some uncharted territory. Uh, do stay for that if you want to be at the forefront of the coming evolution of Noetic Nomads. Now, enough about me. Let's pass it on to the exciting stuff. And with that, I'll turn it over to Evan. Please take it from here and help guide us through this new expanse, which is Western Core Tantra. All right, thank you, Albert, for having me and, uh, and having this event. I'm super excited to talk about this. So um, let's see, Forrest, um, I could just go ahead right off with some questions I've got. I've, I've read through the, the new work and I'm very interested in that. Or I was wondering if you felt like you might wanted to give some brief opening thoughts, a brief introduction to this work um, be before we get to any sort of uh, dialogue or Q&A. I feel open. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to field questions. And uh, as uh, introductory material comes up as maybe being relevant, I'll offer that. Okay, well, um, in that case, I guess, um, one of the first questions that occurs to me is, 
trying to get a sense of the relationship of this work to some of your other major published work. So in this case, that would be the eminent metaphysics and the principles of effective choice. So how do you see this third uh, lengthy work as fitting into to your overall body? At, and how, uh, how are the others influencing it? You know, to kind of take that wherever you want. Yes. So the main thing is the, uh, the connection between the books is that this book is derived from the content of the effective choice. And it is kind of a prelude to the tiny book. So think of it as living in the space between those two. Um, it is basically an edit of the effective choice. Um, but the emphasis is definitely different. I, uh, in, in the effective choice, the emphasis was helping people to understand uh, the nature of themselves from a psychodynamic point of view, the nature of choice in a kind of integrated and ethical way. Whereas um, the Western core Tantra book is uh, much more oriented to kind of uh, spiritual reading. So in other words, it takes it more into the experience of life or the practice of life as, a, as an engagement. And so in, in that sense, the, the emphasis is definitely different. So the way that it's written and the, and the kind of phrasing and, and, the, and the breaks that are, that are constructed in that uh, are intended to create a kind of feeling in the person that is reading it as much as it is to create a kind of uh, understanding. That makes a lot of sense. When I was reading it over the course of the past week or so in preparation for this event, and also just because I, I, I've, I've really gotten a lot out of everything of yours that I've read, um, you know, it, that definitely came to the fore. Like there were a few times when I just felt almost overwhelmed by by the the feeling of what was coming through the page rather than just the propositional content. So that was a, a good job there. And, and so I guess that sort of leads me into my next question. So as Albert mentioned, I've had an interest in Tantra and a practice in that area in the more um, traditional usage of that word, um, specifically in the Buddhist Tantra, um, in the Nyingma tradition primarily, and, and you know, dabbling around in others. And so I'm curious, I have some of my own thoughts about this, but I'm really curious to hear um, from your perspective why you selected the phrase Western Core Tantra as the encapsulating title and, and what Tantra means to you in this context. That is a very evolved question. <laughs> I will do my best. Um, so the notion of Tantra, I mean, obviously there is a lot that has been written about this. There's a lot of different understandings. Um, I guess we could say there's the very early shamanistic uh, connections, um, which is mostly the thing that I was really referring to when I was thinking about this. Um, then there is, as you mentioned, the sort of Buddhist teachings um, and the sort of ritualized forms. And then um, there's the later sort of um, experiential uh, bliss oriented, uh, I guess you could call them the modern forms. And um, in, in a sense, I'm not trying to uh, reinterpret Tantra. I mean, there's a lot of people that have uh, written really uh, excellent books on these topics. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of my work as being in addition to that. Um, so one sense of the reason why I was uh, feeling uh, that it was okay for me to use the word Tantra in connection to this particular work is that uh, the term itself uh, is often in reference to a text. Uh, so if you look at, um, you know, some of the really early uh, ways of which this philosophy has come to be uh, embodied in the world, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Buddhism, but there's also uh, Indian traditions as well. Um, 
and so in effect, there's this there's this real deep sense by which um, there's a kind of interplay between principles and practice. So, in fact, this this is um, actually one of the really deep themes that that in in my experience has been um, one of the things that I've, I've I've really really felt very closely aligned to. So. In a lot of respects, when, when you look at um, tantric uh, history and you and you see some of the uh, more transgressive elements, right? There's a there's a willingness to reevaluate one's relationship to life, one's relationship to culture, to actually seek the truth with a kind of experimental, firsthand perspective. And this this feels very relevant today because. Um, and, and if we look at complexity theory, for example, so a lot of the work that I'm doing is connected to uh, notions of community governance. How do we make sense as a community? How do we figure stuff out and deal with particularly chronic problems that are uh, not very well responded to uh, with traditional governance forms? So in, in this particular sense, the idea here is, is that in, in, in an evolving world where there's a lot of complexity and a lot of, um, you know, sort of complicated rule systems, you know, codes of laws, civil, civil notions of jurisprudence and things like that, um, that as the world changes, as the world evolves, you know, the natural environment is change. It has this dynamic uh, built into it that over time, the uh, sort of moral codes that at one point had a, a very good, strong connection to people's lives and made a lot of sense in the context, uh, gradually become uh, less and less well adapted to the needs of the world. So um, you know, the people that are in it are effectively feeling the strain by which the old moral codes no longer suit the uh, ethical dilemmas that they find themselves in. With the introduction of technology in particular, uh, these issues and of course the rate of change uh, that has accrued in civilization has uh, become uh, so much change that, the, uh, that there's a sense by which we need to go back to underlying principles. So in effect, there's this uh, recognition that, um, you know, rule forms, things that are um, pretty much historically codified ways of thinking um, are no longer really providing the insights necessary for people to make choices uh, individually and collectively and feel good about the outcomes of that to, to not only have the choice uh, look good and feel good, but for it to actually be good in some holistic um, sense. And so in effect, what I'm uh, basically doing by using the word Tantra explicitly is to recognize that there is a need for us to go from rules back to principles. So there's a sort of trinity here. Like you'll notice that in, in a lot of my uh, philosophical work, there's, there's a lot of triads, distinct and separable and non-interchangeable concepts. And so in effect, the notion of uh, rules principles and practices is a triad in exactly this form. And so in effect, what we're, what we're wanting to do is, is to go from the uh, omniscient form of rules, right? Codes that are defined from on high and some hierarchical uh, civilization uh, construct um, to a, a sort of transcendent view, right? The, the, the transcendent comes after the omniscient and, and that the transcendence is in effect going to describe the principles of reality itself, the principles of, of being, of consciousness, of the relationship between self, world, and other. And I'll get back to that as a, as a specific uh, content because that's really important also. So in effect, the idea here is, is that we move from the omniscient, which is a sort of 
um, you know, structure of mind, uh, conceptual way of thinking about things, a sort of modeling uh, science and technology, uh, mathematics as being kind of the exemplars, uh, to a, a sort of deeper value system, a deeper set of principles, a kind of generative basis by which we can truly understand uh, anew the relationship between self, world, and other. And so in this particular sense, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of return to source. And from that source, we can create new practices, new ways of being, new ways of living individually and in the community, such that uh, we are in right balance between man, machine, and nature. Right? Machine system is essentially a, a new uh, phenomenon in the world, right? So between, say, song, which is our, our own communications with one another, our in-person experiences, our, our joy in life, so to speak, um, and then the notion of text, you know, in this case, sacred text, but uh, also that there is this new phenomenon called code, the system, the, the kind of causal structures that define the nature of the world itself. And so in effect, there's a, uh, a sort of supplantation that has happened by machine, by system, by uh, organizational rules that needs to now move back into the sacred, move back into a sort of um, origin in value, origin in the nature of, of the relationship between the subjective and the objective in a fundamental way so that we can effectively know from those principles what practices are actually going to make the difference. So in this sense, the, uh, the notion here is, is that there is a direct encounter between self and world, between other as, a, as, a, as an embodied consciousness and other as a divine consciousness. And that from that, we can effectively learn the things that we, can, uh, that we need to in order for the um, the self to world and other to other relationship to actually co-inform one another. And so this is essentially part of the reason why I used the word tantric very specifically because it, uh, the emphasis of Tantra has very much to do with the uh, sort of reflection that not always is it the case that civil codes are the expression of the truth that to really find truth, we have to be willing to sacrifice our social position, our reputations, our uh, egoic, uh, self-identified uh, social media personalities, the projections that we create to come back to essentially the deep connections between um, self and reality, between uh, self and divinity to in effect become as divine creatures. The notion here of integration is a crucial one. So when we think about say, uh, Tantra as a uh, sort of uh, holding at once the notion that we are embodied creatures, that we have feelings, that we have, um, you know, these, these passions, and at the same time using those as tools to connect to a higher, uh, a higher notion, a higher principle. And so in this, in this sense, there's a, there's a, there's a corollary to uh, if we're going to do good community design, if we're going to think about things that have to do with uh, making choices as communities that are genuinely wise, right? That incorporate wisdom in a way that is 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 healthy, that creates a a, a future of prosperity, right? That there's a that there's a, a fulfillment of the obligation of governance in the sense of to protect the land and the people as a first function, but also to encourage or to create the nurturing circumstances by which the land and the people can genuinely thrive. And this is the fundamental obligation of the uh, methodologies by which communities make choices. 
Um, so in this sense, we are uh, very much looking at uh, a, a kind of uh, sort of historical perspective that indicates a, a kind of willingness for a person to, uh, again, uh, relinquish their ideologies, relinquish their politics, relinquish um, their preconceived notions of what the truth is, and to enter into a direct relationship with nature, to a direct relationship with the wild, as scary as it may be, in the love of the truth. Right? This is a philosophical um, precedence in a sense. So in effect, what we are uh, therefore looking at is essentially a, a kind of um, transcendence of tradition. And in this sense, we, we can, from that basis of connection, basis of principle, actually be able to individually and collectively make choices that, that are effectively going to be responsive to the actual conditions of the, the, whole, the wholeness of humanity, right? We, if, we, if we don't genuinely understand our own bodies, our own psyche, the actual biases, cognitive and otherwise, that we have, then we can't compensate for those in principle to essentially engage in true practice. So in effect, without really understanding the nature of nature and the nature of ourselves and the relationship between those uh, as evolution uh, and other disciplines like genuine intellectual disciplines would, would, would have us come to a full discernment as to what uh, those things genuinely imply, what is genuinely needed in, in, in a deep integrative way. So in effect, we can think of Tantra as being a kind of resacralization of the mundane. And so in this particular sense, you know, it feels to me that the uh, concepts that we're describing in this particular sense have vast applicability in our current context. And that without really uh, going into these particular things in some depth, that it's quite easy for us to make mistakes with the kinds of uh, God-given powers that technology has afforded us. I mean, if you think about say, for example, uh, the Greek pantheon, right? You have Zeus, like this all-powerful dude, right? And he uh, throws lightning bolts, and lightning bolts are a big deal, and you hear thunder, and this is like an amazing thing. He's got this hammer that can knock stuff flat. Um, and, you know, we can go into the personalities and try to think about the nature of all of the relationships and such, but what we really come to is when we look at the forward uh, modern era, for example, and we have nuclear weapons, and a nuclear weapon, when set off, generates hundreds of lightning bolts, just as a mere side effect. Most people don't know this, but there's so much phenomena associated with it. There's literally hundreds of distinct physical phenomena that wouldn't otherwise occur. And that, in effect, the, uh, the creation of, of you know, a single hammer that can knock something flat has now been completely surpassed by something that can knock entire cities flat. And so, in effect, there's really no question when making comparisons like this that the kinds of powers that we are working with today so greatly exceed what could even have been imagined by the Greeks, that the notion of divinity itself needs to be understood in a much, much deeper sense. And so in this particular sense, there's a, there's a, there's a real sort of uh, going back to the principles, going back to the deepest connections between self and reality, looking at what is genuinely the nature of the transcendent and the sense of, of, of the values of being and of life and bringing those forward in a sense that actually allows us to be divine creatures, because at this point, that is something that we are, right? Whether we uh, understand that as being true of ourselves because of the technologies that we wield, or we understand that in something as, a, as an inherent nature of the sacred indwelling, right? 
So we move through the transcendent and we come back to the imminent. We go from principles into practice. And you notice that the relationship between principles and practice is not intermediated by any system of rules. It is a direct relationship. It is a rediscovery of the nature of the essential nature of ethics. And so in this particular sense, we can now create out of the imminent new social codes, new forms of, of morality, new, new ways of thinking, the, the, the notion of conserving life and preserving it and so on and so forth becomes a beginning. But in effect, we really want to go again beyond just the protective notion, but to the notion of genuinative, genuinative genuine creative um, you know, nurturance, like we want life to become more alive. Right? Not because it was less perfect, but because it was beautiful in its wildness. So if we are genuinely going to get the relationship between man and machine and nature right, we're going to want to basically take the best of what we know from historical traditions and also understand the best of what we know from uh, all of the modern traditions. I mean, if we call science and technology a tradition, I suppose we can do that. But in a sense, there's a there's a deeper integrative synthesis that allows us to move from the omniscient through the transcendent and into the imminent, into genuine practice. And this is where the notions of governance and community and all of that come back to bear. So that covers the word Tantra. <laughs> so it does. Uh, really great answer. <laughs> not quite done. There's one last little piece. <laughs> um, Western core. So in acknowledgement that there is a long history of Tantra and the fact that I am a modern person using this term, and also in recognition of the nature of the means and method by which I, I, I can't say created, uh, found, somewhat created, somewhat found, somewhat discovered, the metaphysics, the imminent metaphysics. <clears throat> there are depths to that which I would have great difficulty putting into words, but nonetheless, I would be able to say that insofar as it was a from scratch derivation, it connects back to these earlier traditions in the uh, three plus one sort of concept. Um, the, the notion of Trinity is part of the same derivation that the word uh, Tantra itself has. Um, there's many uh, root termed connections that are, that, are, that are important, but nonetheless, the, the idea of trident and trinity and such like that is, is an element of that thing. If we're going to uh, move beyond duality, um, we can obviously uh, do so through going from two to one, the merger process, the sense of bliss that results from that. Um, you know, we can talk about the nature of joy and pain because that's part of what's in the book but also that there's a sense that we can return from the two to the zero and that the relationship between the, the zero and the one as a relationship moves itself into the three, right? So this is where the Trinity comes out. So the dynamics of all of this are actually pretty much what the, what the book of the imminent metaphysics is about. I mean, that's, um, it's, 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 it's interesting in, in one sense because when I created the imminent metaphysics, and, and I'm just going to use the word created the imminent metaphysics as, as prefaced by, you know, some acknowledgments that uh, something like this is not something that can be, quote, created. It is, it has a being, it has a what. But the idea here is, is that insofar as I'm representing.
Oh, a little bit of lag. You hope Forrest will be back soon. Specific symbolism. Like if you read the uh, imminent metaphysics, you'll notice that I've actually worked, that the writing itself has, uh, doesn't include any symbolism. It is almost entirely devoid of personality and culture. It doesn't have metaphor, it doesn't refer any to historical examples. It is essentially a, a, a pattern created onto itself. And it uses uh, modern terminology because it happens to be the language that I know. And at best, it cites things like uh, computer science and, and, and some areas of mathematics, uh, particularly linear algebra and information theory, uh, some elements of category theory. There, there's a whole bunch of stuff which would be as, as readily connected to the modern world as it would be to say, um, something of, of, of deep historical significance as in Tantra or in shamanism or in many other traditions, Buddhism, Sufism, all sorts of things, basically. The idea here is, is that by having the underlying pattern be expressed in a manner that was in specific to any particular culture or symbolism or history, that in effect becomes a bridge by which the underlying patterns of all of these different traditions can be seen. But insofar as it has its origin from within myself as a modern Western person, then in this particular sense, it becomes a new core infrastructure by which to understand all of these traditions, Tantra and, and all of these other things included. And I, I again, I'm, I'm reluctant to make a list because, um, you know, any, any list that I create, there would be some number of people would say that uh, things should be on it or not on it. And that's a political question, one I'm not actually interested in. So the notion here is, is that the underlying tautology is one that is of such a fundamental nature that it can connect these other domains of practice, these other domains of principle and of, of philosophy, that in effect, we can therefore have a kind of bridging that is going on that is rooted in the, the modern times, but that can reach back into earlier times rather than having earlier times inform the modern. And so in this sense, this is why it is called Western core. Because even though the Western core is consistent with the Eastern core, it is essentially without history. It is de novo in one sense. I mean, there is no such thing as purely de novo. We can basically say there's a common perennial philosophy, but it is timeless. And in this sense, the time can go backwards as well as forwards. But in recognition of the fact of that, I therefore call it Western Core Tantra. Well, thank you. And I'm sorry to have jumped in uh, too early uh, before no, no, it's... explaining earlier, that's, that was a great addendum with the Western Core part. And you know that's just activated so much. Uh, there's so many directions that we could go. I mean, you know, your comment about the eminent metaphysics there. So I, I think I have a somewhat similar background to you and that I've spent a decade and change in various esoteric practice, but I'm also an engineer and computer scientist. And uh, when I, the, the, the eminent metaphysics is a book I keep returning to since I first discovered it because it does have, like we've invented some new and really useful metaphors. The ones you mentioned, category theory, linear algebra, topology, you know, these sorts of things, right? Um, the, the notion of functions, um, mappings, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, and those seem to me to help review, re resolve a lot of the confusions that have existed in earlier philosophical systems. So 
you can kind of cleanly see with that background where the way that things are expressed in the eminent metaphysics is on the one hand, yes, often an expression of the sort of perennial philosophy in some way or another, but in a far less confused and more precise way because it's able to use the more powerful abstractions that we've developed over the past few centuries in the West. And so I think that's you know, just an incredible contribution to the, uh, the philosophical field. I mean, it's, it's one of the, maybe the only, I don't know, one of very few books that I read and I don't constantly want to argue with. Um, so, you know, and, and I had a very similar feeling with the Western core Tantra work because this has been a really active in, of an area of investigation for me. I mean, you could view the project I'm doing over on the Stoa, the bridge as having a similar inspiration though a different flavor and a different emphasis to Western core Tantra um, in this sense. Uh, in that there's so many wonderful insights and ways of relating to being an active co-creator or co-participant in life that I've gotten out of these mystical traditions, but most of those are not culturally native to the West. And I've always struggled for how to language those in ways that don't involve importing terms from Sanskrit or Tibetan or Arabic or, you know, et cetera. And so um, I think that was a really excellent um, you know, uh, effort, that first draft that you posted, I don't know if that's the final form or if you're going to continue to work on it, but I mean, I really, the way you just described it is like, I think if anybody goes and reads the text, they'll, if you haven't already, you'll go and see that that's exactly what it is. So, you know, I just wanted to, again, remark on how, um, how beautiful that description was and how, how well fitted to the underlying material. Um, one thing that struck me as you were mentioning the triads there is, you know, one of the one of the earlier roots of, of the word Tantra, right? Tantra in Sanskrit has to do with weaving, right? And also with principle or doctrine, which is, so it's an interesting hybrid kind of set of connotations, but the original meaning had to do with weaving. And so this connects interestingly with your triads um, or, or triplicate concept from the I am in that it seems strange to talk about weaving two things together. You're just twisting at that point you need three strands in order to be able to weave. So I thought that was an interesting implication for why Tantra was an especially appropriate um, you know, term to use for this, this new effort. And so on that note, you talked about um, you know, your, your sort of rules or laws, you talked about principles, um, and then you talked about the domain of the eminent as completing that triplicate in the realm of practice. And so um, I would say from my own reading of, of the text as it exists so far, it seems a very thorough and, and uh, exhaustive exploration of, of what I would consider to be like the space of valid principles. Um, and so I'm curious as far as um, for a reader or for somebody who's feeling called to this work, how, so, so we've, got, we've got the eminent metaphysics, we've got the Western core Tantra, in a way that's informed by these works, how would you suggest people approach the eminent domain, specifically practice? Like how, what sort of practice? Because I know in my own life, there are types of meditative practice or physical practice, martial arts practice, improv practice, different things without which I would be so much less able to embody these sorts of principles. And so I'm wondering what sort of practice or, or how, how one might use this as a guide to discovering the right practice, um, if you have thoughts on that. I have some thoughts. I don't have very many thoughts. Um, this is in one sense an easier question because the you, you mentioned the terminology, for example, and I was very, I was a little concerned to even just use the word Tantra itself. Um, 
you know, I, I, I could have used the word druidic, for example, and not had anybody understand what that meant. I could have used uh, shamanistic and have lots of confusion there. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different uh, choices that could have been made in this particular regard. I think that the, the, the there's, there's a couple of dilemmas. Like I said, one was the choice of terminology and the willingness to use that one term because some allowance had been made for that. I mean, if you, if you go to some of the, um, the very specific uh, descriptions, you know, the real, the, the, the real teachings of Tantra in, in a lot of ways, and I'm not speaking of, of you know, the, the, the sort of modern forms, but, but some of the very early forms, um, there's, a, there's a lineage element to it. There's a kind of guru-disciple relationship. And, um, you know, to some extent, that's a very private relationship. I mean, you know, people can think of it as having sexual elements, but it's a lot more than that, really. It's a kind of uh, trust. There's a, there's a deep trust there. Uh, in effect, the, the, the disciple is basically saying something along the lines of, um, in my willingness to be completely open and trusting, and in the guru's complete capacity to be in integrity in that trust, to have earned that trust genuinely, um, the capacity of being open on the part of the disciple becomes a practice that essentially opens them to the spiritual phenomena, to the mysticism. And of course, that works as well as, you know, as, as long as, in effect, the, the guru essentially holds that relationship in the utmost sacredness and integrity. In the modern world, such a relationship is actually quite hard to imagine. We haven't had that level of trust in society for a really long time. And so in, in, in this particular sense, I'm, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to uh, recommend a practice that, that is a lineage element in the same sense, only because uh, you know, the narcissism factor of modern world is, 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 is so dominant that it's hard to, uh, to, to recommend something like this. And also, given the, uh, uh, the, the essential reality of the, of the sheer diversity of people that are alive today, there's so many different cultures, so many different backgrounds, that I feel that to any, uh, to, to, to any of them for me to try to suggest you should do X or you should do Y is to step well outside of the bounds of, of, of my own integrity. If somebody uh, approaches me as a person, as a single individual and, 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 and uh, is, is, is willing to engage with the level of intimacy with which this actually has, um, and I mean intimacy in, in, in a sense of soul intimacy, not just uh, physical intimacy of living together, um, then, then you know, that would be a, a, a personal thing. But on the other hand, as far as recommendations are concerned for larger practices, I've had this notion that my work was not intended to be a recommendation of practice. And that in effect, that my work would only really be understood by people that were already engaged in practice. So in other words, when I wrote the Imminent Metaphysics, I, I wrote it deliberately, and this is back in the 90s that that book was composed. I, I wrote it with a real awareness that the people that I was actually uh, hoping to have read that was uh, far and away not the common man, but, but, but essentially the people that had, in whatever tradition that they chose and whatever walk of life that they happened to be a part of, that they had studied that tradition deeply enough 
had engaged with it with a level of commitment that was sufficiently suffusive to encompass a large enough aspects of, of, of the variety of their life that the principles that I was describing would be recognized, right? So in effect, it wasn't so much that I was trying to convey principles so much as I was trying to create a context by which people could trust that I had conveyed the principles. And so in effect, if there was incompletions in the particular tradition that they had been engaged in, so say, you know, there's, there's 12 principles and their tradition happens to teach seven of them, that in recognizing the genuine clarity of the seven, that they would be able to integrate the remaining five. Now, I'm just picking numbers out of the air here, but the idea here is, is that if you can see that a text has a coherency as a totality and great parts of it connect to things that you know deeply and intimately and well, then on that basis, you have the trust the same way that the disciple would have a trust of the guru, that the remaining principles that were being spoken of, even if they weren't understood yet, would be looked for in the elements of the tradition that you were already a part of and therefore discovered anew. So in this particular sense, I am not recommending any specific practices as so much as I'm recommending that somebody engage with some deep practice, with some deep, deep and genuine commitment for some fairly lengthy period of time. And by time, I'm talking decades. There are concepts within the imminent metaphysics which simply will not be understood unless that has already been the case. There are layers upon layers within that text. I remember that at times when I was composing it that I was searching through the language of the, of the English language and, and, and seeing that there were three and four and seven different ways a given statement could be interpreted depending upon the particular nuances of connotation of each of the words in composition. And so I was effectively selecting on the basis of that that composition, that phrase and that sentence would be structured in such a way that even the misunderstandings would be correct. The calculus of that was mind bending. But the idea is that as a person understands one interpretation and they read through it and it provides a way of integrating with other interpretations of other principles and other places in the same text, that a larger pattern begins to emerge and the awareness of that pattern allows for an unlocking of another interpretation of all of the phrases in certain places. And so there's a kind of Easter egg phenomenon that happens that that new layer creates essentially a new awareness of a slightly deeper pattern which itself in embodiment allows for a, a, another interpretation of other phrases and other parts of the same text. And gradually by degrees, it deepens. And of where that goes, I cannot speak. All right, wow, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, Evan, are you there or do you have a response? Yep, I'm here. Sorry, I just had a video cut out for a second. Can you hear me, Albert? I can hear you. Yeah. Cool. So, 
that way you phrase the web of connotations and that even the misinterpretations or something like that might point people still in a correct direction reminds me a lot of the way that ancient Greek literature worked, whereby there was the canon of Homer and some of the other early philosophers and little bits of phrasing, almost everything was written in meter, would imply entire idea complexes and could be read from multiple angles, but with kindred meanings. It seems like, a, again, a sort of archaeological reconstruction of this Western way of writing with deep meaning somewhere in between prose and poetry. And I, I think that that effort comes across in, in, in the work itself. Um, I guess the reason that I asked the question about practice, uh, and I, I want to ask it from a slightly different angle, because I think that there is something valuable here is in spaces like this one, like Noetic Nomads and some of the other adjacent spaces that you've been a guest at or a part of as well, um, there's this phrase called an ecology of practices. And historically, a tradition provided what was at least within the frame of that tradition conceptualized as a complete and self-supporting, mutually self-supporting ecology of practices. So for example, in Buddhist tantric traditions, there are practices that are more or less centered on what I would call phenomenological self-inquiry, getting to know deeply the nature of the subjective. There are practices centered on cultivating the sense of compassion or friendliness as a literal translation of metta. And then there are practices that might be in the realm that we might describe as sorcery or the effective use of the minds to interface and interact with and potentially alter the course of reality. And those three form a triplicate in many of the different traditions. And so um, the reason I ask about practice from the frame of like the Western core is because I've spoken with so many people in these spaces who feel a bit lost, you know, like the paradox of choice where when you have so many options, it, it actively becomes harder to choose and you feel worse about it. Um, because we have this smorgasbord, we have access to all of the wisdom of the ages and all these different traditions, there's a few clicks away in most cases. And so I'm wondering if you have thoughts about um, how people who, it seems to be something that many people in these spaces are called to, to sort of roll their own tradition, to sort of um, construct their own ecology of practices. And I wonder if you have thoughts about one, maybe the wisdom of doing that or the unwisdom. And also um, if, if, if one is to do that, how, or if one is not to do that, what the approach that you might suggest alternately might be. Very good question and an appropriate one. There's a lot to speak to there. Um, the path that I personally took, uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend. Uh, it was an exceptionally steep path. I would hesitate to imagine the effect on someone who came to understand this material in less time than it took me to write it and discover it myself. I was literally at the very limit of my capacity for years. So in that sense, if I were to make suggestions that were the near analogs of things that I personally was engaged with, um, Tantra obviously is already mentioned explicitly simply because, and I've chosen that particularly because that is the best arrow I currently know um, that can meet both East and West. And to some extent, both get updated. And in effect, there's a lot of analogous things. So for instance, in the, the Tantric side of things, I point to the earlier parts, particularly the 
uh, more shamanistic parts. Uh, my uh, background has um, elements of nature religion all through it. Um, you know, what would be maybe called paganism or witchcraft or uh, things like that. I happen to know some of those traditions reasonably well. Uh, Sufism, for example, is another one that I dearly love. Um, but I find value in many. And I, uh, in, in regards to the question of, uh, you know, what would I recommend, I can basically say, well, these are things that I would recommend and, 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 and would say there's some value in. But the, with, with the state nature religions one in particular, with shamanism in particular, that's actually not a very good recommendation. Tantra is a better recommendation. Um, you know, if, you, if, I, if I said go study Druidry, for example, although I might know that very intimately, uh, there's very little that's this essentially historical record of that. And, and in fact, it itself has uh, mostly been taken up by uh, a variety of groups since then, which have, uh, you know, a lot of ceremonialist elements to it and, 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 and other things that, that have actually very little connection to the original practice. So in this particular sense, although I know and have friends in that community, I, um, I, I can't recommend it because there's not a lot of practice there. Right, the community of practice is fragmented, um, and in the uh, sort of paganism sort of world, for example, that community has also been extremely fragmented. Has become quite political, social justice warrior emphasis, and all that. So this is part of the reason why I pointed to tantra. But this is not to suggest that one should basically go and look at just the modern New Age version of it. Right. I mean, you'll actually, if I, if, if I remember correctly, the word sex does not actually occur anywhere in Western color Tantra book. Um, it's not that there's any reason to exclude that mention or that term, but it just, it just wasn't relevant to what I was trying to get to. Um, it is relevant in life. Sex and death are primary actions in life. And that in effect, we, we need to encounter the truth of both of those. We live and in this case die also. So in this, this, this notion of uh, being in right relationship with those concepts is, a, is an important thing. But it isn't necessarily the only emphasis that matters, as I'm sure you know, you've already come to understand. In regards to eclecticism, my general thinking on this is, is that it is better to go into a well-established tradition for a period of time, again, several years, study it as it is. Study it in its, in its own context, in its, in its, in its real depth uh, for at least three or four years before switching to some other tradition and trying to go to the same depth. It's actually better to go deep in one than it is to try to go somewhat superficially in many. Um, if you're going to choose uh, multiple traditions and backgrounds spend, you know, several years in each one. And then after that, if you have enough depth in each of them, you might find that you can, you know, kind of mix and merge a little bit. But that is actually a very difficult problem because you end up essentially designing things in a space where design itself is a skill to craft a, a, a new way of integrating different traditions is effectively to require a level of skill that basically means that you've mastered the totality of the human, of the natural, 
and of technology. And that's a tall order. Right? I don't know that any of us are truly masters of human, of natural or of technology. Technology admits of no master. It pretends that it does, but it does not actually. We think that technology serves us, but it is not meant to, it's meant to serve nature. And this is an important thing to understand. Insofar as we are looking to move into the notion of practice in a deeper way, and, and this is where I, I do have some things that are actually suggested or implied in, in the books. Um, you know, there's, there's a mention that we don't wanna have practices which are just transcendent. You know, Christian mythology has a other world and hereafter, heaven and hell, uh, afterlife, you know, good and bad, uh, for the sake of the future, in effect. Then you have the uh, sort of hedonistic uh, traditions of which Tantra has come to sort of be associated. Um, then you have uh, the this, this sort of omniscient traditions of science and tech and, and, and the sort of uh, atheistic uh, way of perceiving the world. I would suggest that any one of these things taken to extremes or not taken in moderation in the context of the other two is going to be problematic. Our civilization cannot endure just a uh, emphasis of just one of those three modalities. It needs integration of all three and it needs into all, integration of all three in a form of flow. This is the axiom two principle. The flow needs to not only be a flow, but it needs to be a flow in the right direction so that it leads to life rather than to death. There are essays on the MFLB website that speak to this. In any case, the notion here is, is that if we are going to engage in practice, we wanna engage in three specific arms of practice. Uh, the imminent practice of which Tantra would be a great example, you know, the sort of uh, religious and spiritual components, right? And by, by spiritual, I mean personal relationships between self and reality and self and other. And by religious, I, I don't mean it in the conventional sense, I mean it in the sense of community, right? The, the way in which we understand spirituality and religion is a kind of integration. Spirituality is the degree to which we can integrate into ourselves, remain as a whole being, even in the context of great pain and great joy. Uh, when we think of say Christ nailed to the cross, Right? There's, there's, that's a tremendous, important, very, very powerful symbolism. And so you know, here's a man who's enduring suffering in an enormous degree. I mean, he has pins nailed through his wrists. He's in the desert, he's parched, right? And he's, and he's not lost his integrity. He's basically saying they know not what they do. He's held to the integrity of himself, despite what could only be described as penultimate pain. And when we think about the Buddha, for example, we think about a person who was, at least in the idealization, the laughing Buddha, who has experienced the joy of transcendence and is, 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 is in bliss in a, total, in a totality of that. And again, keeps to the integrity of himself, keeps to the integrity of the teaching, doesn't lose the integrity of self. So in this sense, spirituality is about the integration. It's about the capacity to integrate all varieties of experience without moving into uh, post-traumatic. So in this sense, the notion of religion is also integrative. It's the 
uh, capacity for a community to integrate all walks of life, all types of people. If I'm, um, I very rarely make movie recommendations, but there's a movie called Chocolat, which I happen to really love. And it talks about, uh, you know, the, the central message is essentially the, the notion that a religion is defined by who it accepts rather than who it rejects. And so in a sense, the notion of community as being defined by a series of symbolisms or narrative codes or a morality of, of one sort or another, but at least that the idea is, is that it helps the community to be the community, to, to, to be a, a, a culture that persists intergenerationally. It has a coherence, it holds together as a tribe or as a civilization. The notion of being civil to one another in a city is the essential notions of civilization. If you lose either of those, civilization is no longer. So in effect, there's a recognition here that both spirituality and religion are going to be important. And that is the imminent path. So practices of the imminent path would be one or the other of those two. And whether we're talking politics or not, that's still within quote, the domain of religion, at least in the generalized sense of which I'm describing it, which again, doesn't have any reference to any specific religion. But I consider the notion of spirituality and religion to be important because they provide for sustainability. If I'm looking for the other two paths of which the imminent is, the, is only one, right? Obviously science and technology to learn how to write code, to learn how to do craft, to be a master woodworker is a testament to the fact that I can use my hands and make furniture and build houses. And I've done those things. I mean, this isn't just that I had a concept and I got someone else to do it. I prototyped my own products. And so in effect, there was a, uh, a real learning because when we engage with the natural world, when there is a direct encounter between self and reality, between self and world, capital S self, capital W world. And this is different than an encounter with other. I'm not talking to other people. I'm, I'm, I'm not a manager. I'm an essentially a maker. And I can be a manager. I've been a manager. I didn't enjoy it as much, but you know, craft is craft and, and management is management, right? So in effect, there's a notion here that if we are going to be um, in the notion of learning about the world, learning about nature, learning about physics and technology and code, the causation by which the world is, then in effect, we're going to need to become skillful with science and technology, right? The science and technology will tell us what we can do, but will not tell us what we ought to do. To get the value system of selecting what we ought to do from what we can do, we need to go back to spirituality and religion. But what is it that defines the relationship between spirituality and religion and science and technology? What is the thing that is essentially this third order of practice, the transcendent practices? And although this is something that I probably won't spend very much time talking about because this category three material, it is inappropriate for me to try to introduce it in this context or this computer that I'm working through will no longer work. But the idea here is, is that if we are going to really understand the genesis of religion, the genesis of science and technology at some point or another, we need to have a kind of mysticism, a kind of willingness to see beyond what is. So in effect, faith is not uh, about belief. It is vision wide open. 
It is a sense by which we transcend ourselves and we can see into the future and visualizing what that future is to have a notion of a pattern of what is an expression of value in technology. So in the sense that I've been working in the realms of uh, mitigating exponential risk or uh, attempting to think about, uh, you know, having civilization endure in patterns that are uh, more sustainable than those which are currently evident. That somewhere along the way, we're, we're effectively reverse engineering. What is the long term? What is conscious sustainable evolution in the millennial dimension? You know, what, what does it mean to have a right relationship between man, machine, and nature that lasts centuries or epochs? And insofar as we find ourselves in a crux of civilization now where these questions are actually relevant, that the depth of knowledge necessary to know and apprehend the metaphysics and to bring it into practice requires a level of strength of spirituality and religion that can hold the vision of that future with integrity and discernment. This is no small feat. It is effectively a magical act. It is to create anew in the genuine sense of creation, not as an event that happened long ago and far away as displaced from the here and now as possible because we cannot see creation and creation is not repeatable. So in this sense, it is not scientific. Science can only study that which is both observable and repeatable. So in effect, the notion and the knowledge of creation is outside of the encompassment of the epistemic method of science. But this does not mean that it is not real. It does not mean that the future is predictable and that to some extent the future emerges out of the present the same way that the past does. And so in effect, there's a, there's a real recognition here that in order for us to be in right relationship to creation as divine beings, right, to embody divinity in the imminence so that we can manage technology to create the future of a thriving world, we are literally going to need to be strong in our practices of spirituality and religion so that we can hold the mysticism and the magic that is genuinely required in these actions. And that is as much on those topics as I can say at this time. Wow. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, Forrest. And um, yeah, I believe maybe we can move on to our first Q&A. Uh, Jonathan, would you like to unmute yourself and ask a question? Sure. Uh, thanks, Forrest, for taking the time to be, be with us. Uh, so my question was about uh, spiritual community, just saying that this is something that's necessary for us as, as we move forward. Um, and I came from the church and traditionally, uh, you know, spiritual community has been formed by the church, uh, which came with its scripture or text or, you know, the language and, and this was the common ground that the, the different individuals could meet together under that shared understanding of what the right relationship between self, other, um, the world was. Um, and today the church, the institution has really lost uh, its ethical and spiritual authority um, in the eyes of a lot of people. Um, and the moderns don't really come together in the boundaries laid, laid out by the church anymore. 
Um, and, you know, given this and that how do modern people who are largely isolated individuals with different experiences, traumas, maps of the world. I mean, I'm thinking about my own, how, how because our, our actual physical experience in the world, we don't, we don't meet together with the people that, is in the, that are in this virtual space. We have the, the people that are in our actual lives um, are probably not the same people that are on this, in this conversation. But yet these are the people that we have to figure out a way to build community with. Um, and so I guess, where do we begin to do that when we don't have that shared uh, tradition um, and we have such vastly different experiences, uh, you know, to, to work with and different people, different socioeconomic. It just, when I, it, I mean, it's really deep within what I want to do. And like, I have lots of elements that I have to work with, but it's so vast and it's so complex that it feels, I don't know. I don't know if you have any insight is like, how do we start to work with the actual pieces in our, in our lives, our daily lives, the people and, and um, start to do this? This is a very good question. It's been on my mind a lot. One of the elements, I mean, there's a, there's a number of elements. I don't, first of all, I'm not going to pretend that I have a complete answer to this question, but I can definitely say num a number of elements, which I have been reflecting on. One of them is the influence of technology on our individual lives, like cell phones, for example, disconnect us from the people that are standing next to us and connect us to someone that's remote and far away. And it does so through a kind of image. There's an intermediation that the technology has to create an image of what that other person is projecting. And so we, in effect, dancing with ghosts. If I were to suggest a kind of uh, conceptual model or a sort of image of uh, people that I think are actually doing better with this. Uh, I think back of the Amish, the Shaker, the Quakers. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking of those because I happen to come from the Northeast and those are groups that are not so far away. We know about them and, and, and we know something of, of, of their thinking and their pattern of life. And so even though I am not part of those, those groups myself, I mean, I, I, I have participated in Shaker meetings, but I haven't actually spent any time among the Amish. So uh, I can only really report some of the things that I, that I perceive that they are doing very well. Uh, they have endured as a community, even in the modern world, because they've been very discerning about what technology is, is allowed in. So in effect, they they, they recognize that technology can have a very strong influence on community. And so they moderate the influence of that technology. They recognize that to some extent, we haven't done a longitudinal study on the effects of civilization associated with cell phones. And the initial evidence is really bad. So in effect, if we are going to maintain community, there's a sense of prioritizing the people that are next door over the people that are maybe a continent away people that we genuinely are living with rather than people we don't even know. And so in this, in this particular sense, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about slow tech, right? Text rather than video. And in this, in this sense, we, we can see that there's a kind of hyper-normal stimulus associated with video engagement. That's actually, I'm actually a little reluctant 
to do a video, but I know that in order to reach people that are interested in learning about these kinds of things, this is pretty much the option that I have given COVID and all the rest of the things that are going on. People have become habituated to seeing a face talking. And so now I become a talking head. And I really don't want to be known as yet another white dude as a talking head because to even regard me that way is to kind of miss anything I care about. So in effect, there's a, there's a sense here that we want to have an interaction that is not predicated upon sound bites or upon impressions, but upon relationships and communication and to have a kind of conscientiousness in that process that, 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 that means that we need a little more time to discern what's going on rather than to react in judgment. So in this particular sense, it's a bit like essentially identifying the notion of uh, hypernormal stimulus, the multimedia world as a kind of addiction, as a kind of sensory overload that doesn't really allow us to come to know what we feel. So, you know, this is part of the reason why meditation is often recommended because it allows us to know how we feel, to become sensitized to feeling. Meditation isn't just about turning off thoughts. It's in that sense, it would be trying to not do something. Whereas really it's about turning on feeling, turning on discernment, turning into the natural repose of your own total being. And so by coming to know oneself in that sense, by knowing one's own signature, when we come into the company of another person in person, we are affected by them. We feel their energies, we feel their, their attitude and their modes, mo moods. <laughs> I meant to say modes, but I really mean moods. Um, that there's a, there's a sense here by which we, from our knowledge of ourself, we can notice the difference of how we are when we are with them. Because we're different with our parents than we would be with our boss, than we would be with our friends. And so in effect, there's a, there's a sense by which we come to understand a little better how to ask and to respond to the question of, who am I? What is here? What, is, what does this mean? Where am I coming from in my expressions? And so in effect, there's a, there's, there's a real recognition here that if we're going to get community right, we're going to need to learn how to get cooperation right. And more than that, collaboration. And there's a difference. And both of those things exceed the notion of friendship. Friendship is, is uh, you know, occasionally I'll help my friend out. But if we're looking at genuine collaboration, we're looking at a kind of sense-making in common, which requires a kind of trust and knowledge of the other and the influences that the other is also exposed to that we also experience. We, we see the relationship between content and context. If we're both in the same room and uh, you know something comes and knocks on the door, we both hear the door and we both look up. And whatever that person says when they come in, we both hear that. And so in effect, there's a shared context. And then we can now combine our sense-making and our discernment so that we can have insight because now we can each see from the other's point of view. So insofar as we can get better at communication, we can get better at reason and we can get better from the point of view of knowing what is the values that we as a community have and from there actually make better choices in design. And there's a whole structure of how I was thinking about it as part of the reason why I spent a lot of time working on EGP. So in a sense, there's a, 
there's there's a kind of architecture of how to do community that I think has yet to be discovered. But these are, as I said, some of the indicators. Um, you know, so what does it come to with practice? Well, know what hyperstimulus is, and know what addiction is, and come away from that. Right. Learn how to be in touch with your true feelings. Do some of the disciplines that are actually regarded as uh, shamanistic disciplines, where you you become aware of the totality of your being. And if that needs some sort of walkabout in order for you to get in touch with yourself, then maybe it's worth the commitment to do that. When we get to a place where we know ourselves well enough that we can genuinely hear and reflect with another person, then sense-making and reason becomes possible. None of us ever make sense of the world by ourselves. We are unable to even be reasonable by ourselves. We can only be reasonable in common, in community. So in this particular sense, and I'm, I'm you know, kind of echoing Habermas here a little bit, but the idea here is, is that to the degree that we can communicate well and fully, artfully, right? Treat communication as a kind of high art. Then from that collaboration can emerge. And from consistent discipline of collaboration, community can emerge then community can support collaboration, can support the individual in their practices. And so an effect we have between the individual, the, the sort of working team of a, of a collaborating group and the community as a whole, that that trinity now in a sense becomes a tripod that each leg helps hold the other two up. So, you know, in effect, all I can really do at this particular point in the time that I have now is to just give indications and hints as to what the direction is. Because obviously community, community and collaboration as processes, they're hard to do, they're complicated. They have tremendous number of embodied elements to learn one's own psyche well enough to be able to compensate for one's own biases and history and to really understand how to be able to perceive the position of the other genuinely. To hold oneself and the other in loving embrace. You know, this is part of the reason why Tantra is a thing that I'm sort of recommending because it it helps us to understand that there is a kind of spiritual resacralization of the relationship between self and other that's grounded in the relationship between self and world. And that's actually a, that's a reference to a practice. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a description of what a complete practice would need to be. It's a way of uh, having a kind of litmus test to tell whether we're on the right path. And we can talk about ethics and all that other kind of stuff at some other time, but you get the idea. Mm, yes, thank you. Thank you, Forrest. And uh, I guess to close off the session and uh, reorienting with the sacred, uh, Chris, can you unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, hi, Forrest. I'm, I'm trying to discover the connection between creativity and Tantra. You mentioned the sacred moving forward, and this question is for creators. If we're not really creating for fame or solely for money, what are we creating in service of? And what do you think about spirituality as a way to reassociate with what we create and produce? Um, so yeah, just talk about the uh, connection between tantra and creativity. Thank you so much. The process of creativity as understood in manifestation of say art or music In one sense, we could describe it as a connection with the divine. We are expressing in a way that is uh, from our soul into the world. 
but much more often it is a, a kind of calling out to others, right? That in effect, we could think of uh, the creativity involved in art and music and in dance is essentially almost a essential relationship. If I, if, if we think about it for music, for example, uh, how many pieces of music do you know that are about food? Not very many. Almost all of them are about love. They're all about relationship. If I'm looking at things from a kind of uh, evolutionary point of view and I'm seeing somebody dance, I can tell immediately their state of health. The action of dancing reveals immediately whether they've sprained their leg or whether they uh, are, tend to favor one side of their body or another, or whether or not they have actual coordination, whether their mind and their body is in synchronicity. So in this particular sense, the, the, the notion of dance allows us to know one another, to enter into a sense of this is a partner which which I can share genetic code. So there's a kind of personal element to art in the same way that there's a personal element to love. So in effect, you could think of creativity as effectively not just being about sexuality, but also being about the generative process of essentially moving into not just service, but actual devotion, right? Devotion is, is a sense of loving without condition. It's a sense of being willing to give even without any expectation of reciprocity, right? Services I'm, 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 I'm giving and I'm giving and there's a sort of functional element another person may benefit from that service. Um, but it isn't necessarily as specific as when I say devotion. When I'm in devotion, I'm in a sense knowing the essence of the other and I'm in total relationship to that essence. So in this particular sense, we can describe the action of creativity, not just being in devotion to that which we might perceive as a divine expression outside of ourselves, but also in a sense of ourselves as creative divine. So we embody the notion of divinity, right? In God's image, we create. And in this deep notion of what is community, we, we choose, right? All of creation is cooperative. All of choice is fundamentally cooperative. So in this particular sense, what we are doing is, is we're saying, I willingly enter into that cooperation. I enter into that flow. I yield myself into this process. So in a sense, this is the, the, the notion of how one's own innermost quality of being touches life. And in that touch, in that contact, art manifests and emerges. It brings the, the vision, uh, the potential into the actual. So in this particular sense, we cannot not be artistic. We cannot not be engaged, right? If we're alive at all, there is going to be a relationship between self and world, self and other. And regardless of which emphasis, whether it be world or other that we prioritize, we are nonetheless always going to be in relationship for every moment in which we are alive. It cannot not be the case that we perceive and it cannot not be the case that we choose. And our every choice is effectively an act of creation. It's an act of creativity. Uh, you know, again, this is a somewhat sensitive topic, but the idea here is, is that if we are 
to think about the relationship between choice and creation is a little bit like thinking about the relationship between say sexuality and love. Creation and love are ongoing. They are ever present. They are an aspect of every situation. Whereas uh, sexuality and choice are a specific moment as an expression of that ongoing reality. We have intentionality in both of those cases. There is a specificness, a here and nowness, a presentness. So rather than speaking about principles, we're now talking about practices. We're talking about the specific ways in which we express our sexuality or explicit ways in which we express our creativity or express our choices that we have essentially through a kind of self-purification have made those choices clearer and more representative of the deep nature of self and the honesty of the world that we encounter. So in this particular sense, there's, there's a whole lot of elements that connect all these things together. So this is part of the reason why I'm just mentioning these things as, as connectives, as, as essentially ways to sort of hear this, this response and to think of the kinds of things that would be on later reflection worth exploring, connections and, and directions to, to follow up on. I don't imagine that everything that I've said to you will make sense on the first hearing but that in time, as you explore further, the connections between these elements will become more and more evident and the creativity and the expression thereof will become more and more free, will flow more easily because clarity is not just the ability to see through, it is also the ability to move through. Wow, uh, thank you, Forrest. And again, uh, of course, I mean, Forrest has such deep insight that we're gonna have to listen to this again. and. Fortunately, this will be recorded and put up on YouTube for people to watch who, who missed it or want to re-listen to it. And um, the book uh, is currently, uh, you're being, is this currently being shot for a publisher for us? Or currently, where is the state with the book? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a publisher that can do signature bound printing. Mm -hmm. um, all of the modern books are mostly done in uh, what is called perfect bind printing. And uh, if I want the book to last, I, I need a, a, an actual sewn. I mean, if it's going to be sutra, mm, uh, yeah, then it ought to be sewn, right? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, in, in that sense, uh, we're, we're, we're in the hope that we can find someone that would be willing to treat this with the grace that, uh, that I would personally prefer to see it have. Um, in the meantime, if people are interested in, uh, again, elements of, of that similar content, uh, there's, there's a link from mflb.com to the Magic Flight website that has uh, the, the effective choice for sale. Um, so, you know, until we get the printing, I, all, all I can basically say is the effective choice would be the nearest analog book to read. Um, you know, I, I, I can't necessarily recommend the imminent metaphysics for, for people that are anything other than deeply interested in the esoterica of this. Uh, but I can say that the Eminent Metaphysics book is the foundation out of which the effective choice and uh, Western core Tantra um, are themselves derived. So they are, in effect, secondary volumes to that. Um, and as I said, there are, there are certainly more to come. The, the, the PDF of the Western core Tantra is, at this particular point, probably complete. I, I don't really, I, at this point, I, after sitting with it for, for some time, I have not felt moved to add to it. Um, I'm probably going to move to add other books instead rather than to continue to try to make one larger. Um, so yes, in that case, like I said, my, my, my writings for the most part can be found on 
uh, mflb.com and every day I seek to try to put something else up, although the rate at which I can do things as a single individual is uh, unfortunately quite limited. Mm. So uh, I have uh, a tremendous amount of material that I haven't yet been able to put into form that is uh, fit to print basically. Mm. Well, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. I know uh, you have much to do and I'm, I'm glad that uh, Cedric and Justin helped put this session together. And I'm glad that you took time on your very busy schedule to come on here and talk about Western Core Tantra. So I put the links in the description. You could head on over to the Magic Flight website, you could, uh, catch uh, the Effective Choice, uh, which has much overlapping content. And of course, uh, Forrest being a master uh, craftsman and woodworker, he wants to have a beautifully crafted book for you, not just for you to read, but you to enjoy as a total experience. So again, so well, again, definitely th thank you to Kedrick for um, Kedrick, finding yeah. this or, or helping to put this together. Um, Kedrick uh, also is a craftsman and he does uh, some very beautiful jewelry if you if you happen to find that as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love craftsmanship and I love hanging out with people that make things. And so uh, if you are a geek of some sort or another, uh, and, and, and love to make beautiful things, uh, please drop me a line. It would, it, would be, it would be fun to do art together. Oh, wow, Forrest, super generous. You heard it here, folks. Nordic Nomads, reach out to Forrest if you are a, if you want to create more beauty and bring it into the world and make a more beautiful future like we like to do at Nordic Nomads. So again, I'd like to end this. Thank you so much, Forrest, for coming on, for all your incredible work, for helping bring more love into this world. It was a pleasure to help introduce Western Core Tantra to our lovely audience and to the public. And again, it'll be released in 2021. Beautifully crafted, of course, because it is a Forest Landry work. And um, that's it. So uh, everyone, so you could you could connect with Noic Nomads and continue this conversation in the Noic Nomads Discord. Link is in the chat. And that's it for the inaugural episode of The Future of Spirituality with Forest Landry and Introduction to Western Core Tantra. Stick around because our newest social event next is coming up next where I expect some very interesting conversations to take place. But again, thanks so much for coming by and thank you, Forrest. You're most welcome. Thank you for inviting me and um, I'm glad to have been here. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.